Welcome back to another episode of Absent Unknown Friend. The Rahway Murder. Man, it's been a while since we've done one of these. Um, Carrie Ann here is about to fly off to Hawaii to visit a friend, and then she'll be in Iceland and Ireland. My and life sounds a lot cooler than I think it is. Yeah, and uh, my wife and I will... Go ahead, you're going away. You're London and yeah. then Scotland. We're going away too. So we wanted to get this recording session done to kind of finish out the main gist of the story of the unknown woman before Carrie Ann leaves for like a month, essentially. <laughs> So it's currently 10.30 at night. We're sitting in my garage. It's raining. I'm not the happiest camper. But we are. I bribed her with bagels, and we are going to do this. Yep. Today on this episode, we're going to be delving into the events which transpired in the aftermath of the murder itself, transfixing the nation and turning the quiet town of Rahway, New Jersey, into something of a circus. And to make this all a bit easier to follow, we're going to review the events that happened between the murder and the burial of the unknown woman, and then... In future episodes, which I'll probably record when you're in Hawaii, we're going to look into... Me um, out. Yeah, well, I just figured... I'm on the sideline now? Yeah, so we're going to uh, look you know, in future episodes into people who were at one time or another suspected of being the murderer, as well as women who had been linked to potentially being the unknown woman. We're not going to do that today on this episode. Again, today we're really just going to cover the events that happened between finding the body to burying the body. Some of that will kind of come up, but we're not going to spend like two hours doing that. Sound good? Sounds great. Great. Before we begin, uh, I dragged my wife, Danny to the Rahway Cemetery for the Unknown Woman Living History Tour, which she was super excited about. They had people playing the people that were involved in this story and telling, you know, and they were like doing it at those people's graves. Yeah, like a reenactment. Right. So that was pretty cool. One of the participants actually was the great-great-grandson of Police Chief Tooker, who is the police chief in the story. So it was kind of cool. It was a great event. If you want to find out more about that event and similar ones, Google the Merchants and Drovers Tavern. That's the museum in Rahway. It's a historic tavern from uh, before the Revolutionary War. They're the ones who put it on. Mr. Shipley, who wrote that book, is heavily involved there. And um, they do a lot of cool events. In addition to things around the unknown woman, they do stuff just kind of about colonial history and things like that. If you haven't already, do yourself a favor and pick up The Case of the Unknown Woman, a story of one of the most intriguing murder mysteries of the 19th century, which is the book that I've said the book like six times about. So... (laughs) There you go. That's my plug for Mr. Shipley. Coming back to the story, here's where we last left you. Quick trigger warning if you're kind of not into hearing about the nitty gritty of mm. the murder. Maybe skip ahead a couple of minutes. But a woman's found brutally murdered on March 26, 1887. She is discovered by four brothers, the Worth brothers, on their way to work in Bloodgoods Mill in Clark, New Jersey, about two miles away. Found about 100 feet on the south side of Central Ave. Her body is just off the intersection with Jefferson Ave near the Milton section of town, near a fence line which was installed the day before the murder. There's signs of a struggle. A simple pocket knife is found about 60 feet away from the body that's determined to be the murder weapon. A woman's black bag was pulled from the nearby Robinson's Branch, which is a tributary of the Rahway River. Clearly, the bag was thrown from the bridge over the branch on Jefferson and not from the slightly closer but next to a house bridge on Central. 
So again, if you think of this as like a triangle, there's a bridge on each corner, and then the murder is the top. The other corner was a little bit closer, but it had uh, a house there. The two came into contact coming from opposite directions with the woman's tracks leading from Jefferson Ave and the man's coming back down it towards Milton. Per the April 9th edition, 1887, of the National Police Gazette, the girl was walking at the side of the road where the ground was very soft. The man's footprints could not be traced as far as the girl's. When he saw the girl, he was probably walking in the middle of the road where the ground was tolerably hard. So Interesting, interesting right? She suffered repeated blows, had plenty of defensive wounds. Her head was stomped into the ground, and her throat was cut from nearly an inch away from the ear on either side of her face. And actually, per the cemetery tour, we discovered that the killer was likely left-handed based on the direction of the cut. Ooh. Chief Tooker of the Rahway Police took initial command of the scene, soon to be replaced by Union County physician Dr. James Green and Union County coroner Thomas Terrell. Crime scene photos were taken, and the body was removed to Daniel Rhino's mortuary in Rahway. And for a more detailed retelling of everything I just ran through really quickly, you can listen to episode two, which is March 26, 1887. Perfect. So we're back in Rahway, and the body's just been removed from the scene. A large crowd is still kind of hanging about, discussing everything going on. This is obviously a really big deal for a town where nothing happens, really. And so 12 members of the public are selected at the crime scene itself to serve as jurors on the coroner's inquest. And what that is basically is kind of similar, again, to like a grand jury. So these 12 people serve the coroner and the prosecutor will present like a case and they'll say what they think happened. So like basically they're me. You're the one with all the information and I'm guessing and asking the questions. Correct. Yeah. And at so they the have end, no you're kind of rendering to, like yeah, a verdict. So they're just kinda. taking right. pictures. Okay. And, and it's like a wide cross section of the town. Like there's a ship captain. There's like a night guard at the felt mill. There's, so it's not like yeah, it's these like are all, all police officers. Yeah, it's all it's local just, townspeople trying to come together to figure out what could have happened. Right, exactly. And William Clark, who is the surveyor who, if you listen to our last episode, they took a picture of the crime and then they had a surveyor kind of draw a map. He's the guy who drew the map. And then like a couple of minutes later, they're like, you're the foreman. And he had to select the remaining people. The first hearing for this group was scheduled for Wednesday the 30th. Keep in mind, we're at Saturday the 26th, right? So a couple of days later on Wednesday, and I think it's interesting too, they expected a week to be enough time to begin the proceedings. Yeah, which is nuts. So they were like, yeah, we'll know what basically has happened in a week so that's fine we'll start it then right rewards were soon being put up by the state of new jersey the city of rahway and union county along with private citizens and by like the end of this the total reward being offered and it was kind of split between identifying and catching the killer and identifying the woman herself yeah. um, but the total reward was about seventeen hundred dollars okay yep which doesn't sound like a lot but i went to a uh, inflation calculator and it's roughly around like $53,000 today. That's a lot. So that is a lot, especially if you're, you know, in a, <laughs> in a farming community or you're like a, a laborer at a mill or something. That's like a life changing amount of money for you. This kind of along with the mystery of nobody knows who this person is, nobody knows who killed her, and also just how savage the killing was, really started to quickly attract massive attention locally and in the press. Of course. Yep. Throw um, money anywhere. People want to do something exactly and this kind of comes into play later and we'll talk about it more in whatever episode we do coming up where we talk through like maybe some of the women that were thought to have been uh, the unknown woman because that's a big motivator so people are like hey if i can get away with identifying her not even the murderer but just identifying her maybe i get 500 dollars or something which again figures like 20 grand yeah, still a lot so it kind of while helping to publicize the case it also really 
kind of kind hinders of it. Yeah, yeah, because police have to chase down every lead. And some of the good ones maybe don't and get they, taken they as seriously. And they offered the money within that week? Or how long after did they start to do a, a reward? It kind of accumulated over time, but most of it was within like a week or two of the murder. <laughs> nuts. Yeah, like where it's like, hey, this is put up. Yeah, it's like, oh, we haven't figured it out in three days. We need help. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's kind of from the beginning. Like there's like there's a reward associated with this because people are like, this is ridiculous and crazy and we need mm -hmm. to figure out, like we don't feel safe in our town. We don't know who this woman is. We don't know who killed her. Is it somebody in town? Is it a stranger? Like, let's solve this. As part of the state's effort to assist Rahway, Detective John Kieran, who was the former chief of the Elizabeth, New Jersey Police Department. Keep in mind, Elizabeth is the nearby big town. Got it. So he's the former chief of their police department, and he's assigned to help Chief Tooker in resolving the case. He was briefed on the crime and the autopsy that followed on Sunday, the 27th, which is the day after the woman was found. So again, keep in mind, all this stuff's happening very quickly. Yeah, like this guy's fast. on the case immediately. He's a super tenured, seasoned detective. He's a seasoned police officer from Elizabeth, which was a bigger city and had murders and things, right? So it's like, this guy knows what he's doing. He's going to help Rahway out. And he stays involved throughout the duration of the case. Also, that Sunday, the 27th, was the first public viewing of the body. And this took place in Rhino's funeral home in Rahway. Public viewing as in for a funeral or for people to try to identify? Think of it like a wake, like an open casket okay, kind of thing. So more for people to try to identify her. And that's happening the day after the body's found. So, so fast. Yeah. There's over 2,000 people that view the body that first day. Police were posted there to keep their eyes out for any strange reactions in the crowd. And the mass of curious onlookers passed the victim who'd been cleaned up. She was dressed in white and laid in a coffin that had a glass panel over the face and shoulders so people could see no her. White. And the, yes, I guess kind of like Snow White <laughs> or Sleeping Beauty. Of course, your mind goes to the Disney thing. Slightly different than Snow White or Sleeping Beauty and that kind of thing in that. But a glass casket. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, if you're picturing something, you could picture that. <laughs> it's, I mean, this woman had been Brutal. brutally murdered. Um, but sure, like Snow White. So they go by, they look at her. And in, I believe this one, but definitely in future viewings as well, the knife is put out there. The dress and things that she was wearing at the time are placed onto like a mannequin. So weird. They're just like grasping at straws. Yeah. They're like, do you recognize was this dress? Was her face too beat up to be like figured out? Yeah, so this poor woman. So in, in the first viewing, Mr. Shipley makes clear in his book that her face was bruised still, like visibly bruised, but they covered the cuts on her throat with like a scarf. And they kind of put makeup on her and put her in a nice dress and like washed her face and hair and stuff. But it wasn't. It wasn't like disfigured. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. Where you couldn't like so, it, it okay. would be if you knew that person, you would know. You'd still know. Right. You'd know that it's your friend bruised as shit, but like you'd know. Exactly. So 2,000 people come through. Nothing really happens. There's one guy who kind of goes up to the casket, freaks out, and like runs away. And Did the they cops, chase him? they do, they chase him, <laughs> they kind of get a hold of him, and they're like, hey, what's going on, man? You know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's not how they talked in 1887. <laughs> what's up, dude? <laughs> uh, what's up, bro? And so, and he just books it, and they're like, what's up with that guy? But they figure out where he goes, and he goes to a boarding house, so they, they get the owner of the boarding house to trick him into telling her his name. Basically, she goes to his room, this is according to the book, and says, hey, uh, I need to know your name so that... I can report it to the authorities if this place burns down and you're inside of it. And so we Sweet can like bitch. contact your family. And he's just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So he's like, my name's George Washington Gregory. Hmm. 
And so he's like immediately detained by the police after that. They're like, now we know who you are. George Gregory. George Gregory. Yep. That's a very dumb name. It, it is a very dumb name. If there's any George Gregory's out there, I'm sorry. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't stop listening to our podcast. It's like your parents were dyslexic, and instead of Gregory, they just picked George. George Gregory? I don't know. It doesn't matter. And then that's what they wrote down. <laughs> so, so George Washington Gregory is his name. Al Shipley's book is like 300 pages long, and Jeez. it goes through like day by day what happened. Yeah. We're not going to do that because I don't think it's super important for the story for the purposes of the podcast. I'm skimming some of this. I'll point out some of the more interesting things, and we'll talk about things like who was identified as the woman and things like that later. So, But on that very first day of viewing, George is thrown in jail. Later turns out that he just he says like, he kind of like sobers up and clears his head. He's basically like, I freaked out when I saw her. I mean, fair. I don't think everybody can see a dead Right, person. and he just kind of lost it. And I'm sure there were like some other things going on with him that maybe contributed to that. You have to remember too, this is a time where like mental health wasn't really a thing, <laughs> and so there's probably a lot of people dealing with a lot of things, and then you never know what's going to happen when you put somebody yeah. in that room. Aside from that, nothing really happens that first day. And as we mentioned, over 2,000 people viewed that body. Rahway at the time has five or 6,000 residents, so there's a lot of people that come in for this. 2,000, I think even now is still a lot. Yeah. But think about, and this was something they pointed out on the cemetery tour too, but think your town has 5,000 people and like 4,000 people come to town. That's a big deal. Right. While Gregory is kind of sitting in jail and the cops are like, maybe we got it. This is great. Things are going great. One of the jurors who live near the scene in Milton came to see the authorities <laughs> with his 15-year-old son. And this guy's name is William Brunt. So the reason that I'm including him is, keep in mind, this is Sunday, the day, day after, after the body's found. He comes in, he's like, guys... I figured it out. My son knows what happened, and we know who killed her. Oh. And he says Plot that twist. his neighbors, Clinton Froat and William Keach, are the ones responsible. He claimed that his son had seen a woman with the same hairstyle as the murdered girl in Froat's yard the day of the murder, hanging laundry on the clothesline, which is pretty compelling, right? Is he not married? Clinton Froat is married. So it, it could have been Mrs. Froat? It wasn't Mrs. Froat. William Brunt's son said, this woman is someone I haven't seen before. Yeah, She's it. got the same hairstyle as the girl who we just saw. Chief Tooker's like, Okay, great. Let's go follow up on this. So he goes to the Froat house, and Froat's stepson answers the door with like his with like an elderly woman, and it's basically like my stepfather, uh, my uncle, who is William Keach, my stepfather, my uncle, my mother, and this newly arrived girl from Ireland left here today. They went to Westfield, New Jersey, to go see our grandma. So he's basically like, they're not here, yeah. but that's where they went. You can go find them. Like there um, was a random girl, but she's no longer <laughs> right. She's out with them. Took her basically finds this credible and says okay thanks and he goes to kind of see if he can run into them in Westfield to confirm all this and he actually comes into contact with them when they're coming back into town so they okay. kind of stop each other on the road Froat was there his wife was there William Keach was there this this girl Nancy was there and Nancy's this girl from Ireland and Chief Tooker notes that she does have the same hairstyle as the dead girl okay. so he's like so okay this, this made sense but this is clearly not a thing and they move on so what, so they just assumed, though, by seeing that, that that guy killed her. Like, they saw a random one, they assumed it was their neighbor. Right. And just, okay. Actually, I'm glad, that's kind of a nice segue, right? So I wanted to delve into this a little more, kind of taking it out of the maybe the linear progression of this and just talking about this. So it's worth noting that Brunt's brother found the black bag in the river. So his brother finds the bag. His son is the one. His son's the one who sees it, and he's immediately like, I know who did this. It's like, why are you pushing this so hard? You yeah, know, like That was something that struck me from early on, and it actually does come back, and I, we'll talk about it a little later. 
but Clinton Froat and William Keach, again, Keach is, I believe, the brother-in-law of Froat. Okay. They'd all just moved to town recently. They moved about five months before. I need before like a family th- tree. <laughs> I know. This is why like I wanted to break up these episodes, yeah. right? So Froat and Keach were the first in many people's minds when they thought of suspects because they lived on the corner of Jefferson and Maple, which is three blocks down Jefferson from the murder over that bridge. Okay, and it was right? a little bit further down. Yep. And they were known to have parties. They had a party the day before the murder. They lived in a kind of run-down house. Froat moved to Rahway from Elizabeth about five months prior to the murder. And he kind of had like a bad reputation as like a lazy guy, like a troublemaker. Keech had one eye. Oh. And so me reading this, it's like, oh, the one-eyed guy, you know, who's always having parties did it is kind of how they thought of it initially. Yeah, they're picking the easy target. Right. And that's kind of the sad thing. So it, it doesn't really, to my mind, sound like they had anything to do with it. It makes me think of growing up in Ringwood with the Rampo Mountain Indians. Whenever a crime would happen, people would be like, oh, it was them. They're always having parties or they're loud or they're whatever. Yeah, it's like, no, just leave them. Yeah, and it's just, and and this section of Milton in Rahway was racially integrated at a time when the rest of Rahway really wasn't. It was a lower socioeconomic area, so people were poorer. So when the murder happens over there, they're like, oh, well, obviously... The poor people did it. The guys who have parties with their family and friends and are allowed did it. The guy with the eye patch did it. In fact, there's reports from the night of the party, I believe. It's either from the night of the party or the night of the murder. There's reports that William Keach was out walking around with a club and like chasing kids away. But he's chasing kids <laughs> away because they're throwing <laughs> rocks at his house. You know? So it's like... There's also a difference in chasing kids away... And fucking beating someone and murdering. Right. Like, and, and I get the impulse to be like, well, the guy has an eye patch and was kids, walking around like- <laughs> with a club. But it's like kids were throwing rocks at their house. It's fucking hysterical. You know, like kids were, yeah. They're kind of an easy target, like you said, but I don't think that they're involved. No. Personally. So after that whole thing, there was a rumor that a man and two women were behaving oddly at Bennett's Henry, which is near Clark, which is the neighboring town. Bennett's Henry is a chicken farm. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of like tongue twisters. Yep, I was this. like just waiting for you to finish the sentence. Yep. And I was like, okay, so what is that? So basically, uh, Mrs. Bennett and some others reported that there was a man and two women that came to her farm saying that they were from Virginia, but they're staying in Elizabeth. They wanted to do research. They were going to all the different farms in the area okay. doing research because they want to open up a chicken farm. So they're coming around asking questions. And per Mrs. Bennett, she thought that this guy was kind of rude to the youngest of the two girls, and she felt uncomfortable. And so she's like, maybe these are the people, right? Because, again, the woman was found next to a basket of eggs. Oh. The guy's last name is Byrne. And if you remember, there was a stamp found in the bag that said Timothy Byrne. Of course I do. Of course you do. (laughs) So a lot of people are like, okay, eggs, chicken. With the name. Uncomfortable woman, Byrne. Yep. Right. And so these three are actually tracked down by Detective Kieran in Elizabeth and they're ruled out. All of them are alive. The guy's <laughs> like, we were there. We're from Virginia. They were in like a fancy house. They're like, we're just visiting and we, you know, whatever. Yeah, so we're just and that's the thing with this case. There's so many where it's like, oh, of it course, makes sense. same name, eggs, strangers, done. Nope. They're alive. Right. 
they're all alive. They all have like alibis. Everything makes sense. And people are like, all right, that's a weird coincidence. We got to move on. So speaking of Byrne, Timothy Byrne, the name on the stamp, was proving to be a bit of a dead end. There's a reporter from the New York Sun who found out that a Timothy Byrne was listed as living at 108th Street in New York. However, no one was found by that name when they went there. Is that Harlan? Yes. It is now. It is now, right. <laughs> Probably was then, yeah. too. But but again, for those of you listening who know New York, I guess Harlem. Carrie Ann lives in Manhattan, <laughs> so she's, you know, the expert. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So 108th Street, they go there. Nobody there is found by the name, but per Shipley, a woman who lived in the same apartment building told reporters that Byrne had lived there with a wife and two children, but it moved away. And some neighbors thought Byrne was a carpenter, but after questioning work crews in the area, nothing came of that. What's interesting is I did, I've done a lot of research since our last episode. You really have. Like hours and hours and just, hours a this day. This is Patrick to a T. I just show up, but Patrick has talked to the New York Public Library. I have. He's got, Shout out to Maurice. Yeah, Maurice has apparently <laughs> helped him so much this week. You've got different newspapers. You've talked to the people that know fashion from back then. You've talked to all these, and you've done many, many hours of research, so... We've yeah. got you've got a lot of good yeah, stuff. I have. I've actually found some new things that I don't know if they've come to light before, and we're going to talk about that. But I did, in the course of all this, find a Timothy Burns on the census records for multiple censuses, 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 censuses? multiple rounds of the census <laughs> that was living in Brooklyn the whole time. Okay. Named Timothy Byrne, lived with his family, I assume, like his parents and stuff, younger sister. But what's interesting is he had, had his occupation listed as a carpenter. That's too coincidental. Right. But you also have to remember, this is a extremely common name at the time in New York City. There's a lot of Irish people immigrating to the city, and Timothy Byrne is not like a... No, and carpentry, yeah. especially back then, I would yeah, assume Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> came over, and they need to get a job, and they were a carpenter back yeah. home. and they, Right, so it's interesting. It's compelling. I don't know if it matters, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's interesting, though. Reporters did find out that the stamp in the bag was made by the Scottford Manufacturing Company, which was located on Cortland Street in the Bowery. Nice. Yep. Their files showed that that stamp specifically was ordered about a year prior on May 24th, 1886, the Timothy Byrne one. Mm. They kept good records, and this was something that was more of a luxury item than it is today, in that if you have a rubber stamp with your name on it today, nobody cares. But back then, this was like a new development, rubber stamps. So it was- I was about to ask, I'm like, why are people stamping yeah. things? So without getting into super crazy details, because I, I, again, fell down some rabbit holes, but Goodyear, the rubber company, is named after a man who figured out um, how to vulcanize rubber, which basically makes it useful. And that's where we got tires and all this other stuff. Rubber stamps were part of that. So Why do you know that? A, <laughs> deep dives on this. B, random you trivia. before that. C, Fuck off. <laughs> uh, no, I did. Um, Goodyear was a, a customer of mine at a past job, and I went there. Right, see, but also, makes... and sadly, uh, for you Goodyear heads out there, um, he died penniless. So he figured Aww. out the process, but never profited from it, and then everybody else did. That's so sad. Right. Does his family? No. That's not cool. Yeah. <laughs> so poor poor Goodyear. But anyway, <laughs> the, rubber is a big exciting thing at yeah. this time okay. is what I'm saying. People are like really excited about rubber back then, mm-hmm. right? So this company, the Scottford Manufacturing Company on Cortland Street in the Bowery, shows that a year before the murder on May 24th, 1886, somebody orders this stamp. 
it's ordered through an agent, meaning like somebody, I guess, would go out and sell these stamps and then come to the company and say, like, I need 30 stamps. And this agent is nicknamed Liverpool. Okay. He was eventually tracked down, and he described Byrne. Apparently, he didn't want to talk about Byrne. He didn't want to be involved in any of this, but then they bribed him, and so then he was talking. That's what uh, it says in Chipley's book. He describes Byrne as a six-foot-tall man with light brown hair and a mustache, well-dressed but coarse in appearance, with mm. a gruff voice who smelled of alcohol the few times he met him. I was going to say he sounded yummy, but not really the alcohol <laughs> smell. <laughs> right. And so they're like, okay, great. This guy was drinking before he met Liverpool, who lives in Bowery. We'll just go to all the bars in the Bowery and figure it out. Bowery at the time, and a little bit now, but at the time, was filled with bars, and so that wasn't helpful. It was like, hey, we're looking for a man by the last name of Byrne, which is a fairly yep. common name. Uh, he likes to drink, and he's six foot tall and has brown hair. When did brothels stop becoming a thing? That is also a good question. Ah, oh, you don't know it? I don't know that. <laughs> I know, like, Stumped you know, you. the roaring 20s and stuff, they were all illegally run. I don't know. I assume they were somewhat illegal. I, I, I don't know if any of you are super <laughs> up on the sex trade <laughs> in New York City. You can correct us. But, yeah, back at this time, it's like if you think of Gangs of New York, if you've ever seen that movie, that's kind of what the Bowery's vibe was. Yeah. And interestingly enough, Carrie Ann, our great-great-grandfather, uh, John H. Holland, was a detective patrolling the Bowery at this time. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that really so is he, cool. he legitimately was a detective uh, on the New York City Police Department, and his beat was the Bowery. There was a eulogy that uh, I found for him where somebody said one time they were walking through the Bowery with him and he knew everybody, like all the criminals, everybody. He was like, oh, hey, John, like that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, he like knew right. all the goods, all the bads, right. all the in-betweens. So, Holland's mom's side? Uh, Dad's side. Dad's no, side, yeah, yeah. yep. Okay. So what's interesting, again, and it's only interesting probably to you and I, but while they're going through the Bowery looking for this guy, there's a good chance like our great-grandfather was, was like part of, part of it or yeah. you know at the same bar or whatever. Yeah. Great-great-grandfather, yeah. Our great-great-grandfather's boss was Inspector Burns, um, he was like a, fa again, Burns, this time there's an <laughs> S at the end. And he was super famous in the country as the, the head detective in New York City. Didn't he get sent to some places some other time and stuff too? Or did he only do New York? Our great-great-grandfather got, got sent, sent to, to some okay. places. Detective Burns was the Sherlock Holmes. That was the persona he kind carried, of yeah. carried for himself. Not so much with the I'll solve any case, I'm super smart. More with the like, I always get my guy, you know. Yeah. This was back when police officers would throw people downstairs and yeah, then I've, like I've, get a confession I've heard some right some stories they'll hang their people out of a window threaten them yeah get what they want there, like, there weren't as many rules back then no. burns inspector burns not timothy burn again like emphasis pick, on this <laughs> pick any other name he gets involved in the rawway case later on and it's actually hugely embarrassing to him for the rest of his career ah because he, he couldn't he, he came in late though too he came in kind of in the middle of it, and he found a suspect and was like, this is the guy, and the guy had clearly been roughed up and stuff, and it turns out that guy had an alibi. Everybody was like, it's not that guy, and he had egg on his face, Aww. you know, and he, for the rest of his career, apparently, was very bitter about the Rahway case. Jersey pride there, us <laughs> kind of <laughs> frustrating the, the hotshot New York guy. <laughs> so anywho, we're going to get back from our little family history tour there mm -hmm. to the story. So the first coroner's inquest meeting was held on Wednesday the 30th. Again, she's found on Saturday the 26th. So just to kind of keep things moving. It's a couple of days later, and it was pretty much immediately postponed due to a lack of items to discuss. This would happen multiple times, I think three or four more times, 
until a meeting was eventually held during the week of Monday, April 18th. Oh, so it's like almost three weeks after. Right. So for like the first like three weeks, they're like, yep, we're going to meet on Friday. Oh, you know what? We, we, don't, we don't have anything. anything. We're going to meet next Wednesday. Oh, you know what? We don't have anything. So is it because they couldn't find anything or like the science stuff? took too long no science stuff they just none of they didn't have anything to discuss as far as a suspect an identity or there was really nothing new so it took them a while to put stuff together at the wednesday meeting though on the 30th our pal brunt who was the one who came in and said oh my neighbor did it caused a commotion by being late to the meeting and then again accusing in front of everybody there throat and keech he essentially said something like i know who did this and if you just go arrest them you'll have your culprits very Heavy on that guy, but also committed to try to say he knows who did it. and Right. It's just kind of the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, this guy is shady. Yeah. And he's on the committee. He's a juror. Yeah. Yeah. So sometime after this, to quell the rumors, Mayor Daly of Rahway would actually personally question the Froats. First Froat, then Keech, then the wife. He questioned them separately upstairs in the morgue in front of the murdered woman. Jesus. With all her possessions <laughs> there, too. And at this point, keep in mind, this is like a couple of weeks after the murder, so she's probably not looking too good. Ooh, and smelly? No, yeah, I guess in a case, A little maybe. bit. Yeah, they kept her on ice as long Ugh. as they could, but things happen. Still. And he came away from those interviews believing they're innocent. So he, the mayor, did not believe that they were involved. I think unless you're actually a crazy person with no soul, being put in front of the person you murdered with all her stuff, there's no way that they can't not freak out like i agreed that they would be right innocent. and and it's worth noting too that the froats and william keach they talked to the press they were open they weren't they hiding weren't. things but everybody still was like ah, oh it's that other guy right so they're later you know found to be innocent in the eyes of many people another interesting story to come to light early in the investigation in these early days was the story of railroad freight clerk richard feist he claimed to have seen from his office a woman exit the train onto the railway platform earlier that day who in his opinion matched the dress and everything it was her he said he saw her look around confused from one end of the platform to the other figuring out who she is or as if she's waiting for someone and he went to help her and by the time he got down there, she was gone. He found that weird, and that stuck with him. And then when it came to be that this woman was it's murdered. So strange that people would look out their window, see somebody confused, leave their building to go ask a stranger if she needs help. The way that it was told on the cemetery tour by the guy who was playing this guy was that he's a single guy. She's clearly lost okay, and was, a oh, damsel in distress. Right. New. That's okay, how okay, it was okay. told. I can't say for sure that's what happened, right? I wasn't there. Um, but that a makes a little more sense, better, right? Yeah, I'm, like if somebody came up to me and they're like, I saw you from my window and like you looked confused, be like, get the fuck away from me. Right, right. So he's like, I'm wearing a uniform. I'm working for the railroad. I'm going to yeah, okay, go okay. try to help this girl. I guess you know. the, the office would be on there. Right. Like he's okay, he's okay. not I was three like, blocks away in a skyscraper. I was like picturing like a corner street. He's looking right. out over to the train tracks. Like, okay, okay, fair. Yeah. So he sees who he thinks to be her, and again, she looked confused or like she's waiting for someone. Additionally, after all this starts to hit the papers, there's a man from Linden, New Jersey, which is nearby Mm -hmm. as well, and he comes forward and tells a story that's pretty interesting about a man who he met the night of the murder at the railway train station. He said he was tall, he wore an overcoat that he had draped over his right arm, and he never removed this overcoat from his right arm the entire time they hung out. And these guys hung out for like an hour and a half. Like they go get drinks. So, so he knew him? Didn't know him. 
he comes up to him at the train station and essentially he was sort of confused and like, hey, do you know when the next train in New York is? And Friday night. This Friday night. So it could have been like he could have gone, murdered her, got to the train. And right. Was leaving. Okay. So he's kind of looking around, seems shady, but he's like, do you know when the train in New York is? And the guy's like, yeah, I'm going to be going on that train. It's in like an hour, let's say. It's not right now, but it's soon. And so the man asked the man from Linden if he'd go get a drink with them because there's a bar across the street. So they go get a drink and they're talking and the guy said the entire time they're talking and getting a drink, he never removed the overcoat from his arm. He would reach with his left arm into his right pocket to get Mm. money to pay for the drinks and he would do that for his ticket as well. So as if your arm was destroyed and cut or hurt or... It's like your your instinct would be if you're right-handed and your money's in your right pocket... You just reach with your right hand into your pocket, not reach across your body. No, you know, even with the awkwardly. jacket, like you right. hold, you hold onto the jacket with your right arm and still go into it. Yeah. So he did this multiple times, which the guy from Linden found a bit strange. They do board the train for New York together when it comes. The man from Linden gets off in Linden, and he sees the other stranger kind of continue on. But the guy, when they get on, goes to the last row of seats in the car. And sits with his back against the wall. So he's watching. So he's watching yeah. everybody else. He's got, what is that called? Gunman's seat or something? Um, is it dead man's seat? No, because you're not the dead man. You're the, yeah, the watcher. It, so basically, and man, dad is going to be so disappointed in us mm-hmm. for not knowing this. But that's the seat he gets. That's what he does. But basically. It's, so you can see all the exits, all the people. Like you have views of everything so nobody can come up behind you. Right. So it's the purpose of those types Wild of Bill Hickok out in the Wild West would always sit in that seat so he could see everything. And the one time he did didn't he got shot in the back of the head and that's where the connection is so that's where this guy's sitting he's sitting kind of out of sight and can see everything nobody can come behind him nobody can sneak up on him and so he takes the train you know after linden it goes on into the night and the guy never sees him again again they were strangers it was just like hey do you want to get a beer with me it's also weird if you were to just kill somebody to ask somebody for drinks I think it's weird. I also think it makes a lot of sense because you're not standing on the platform attracting attention. You're with someone else, which... He's trying to blend in. Right. All right. So I think it's interesting. Smart motive. Two other witnesses report a similar man in town that night. There's a young man who's coming home from a friend's house on the night of the murder, and he's met by a tall man coming from the direction of Central Avenue. Central Avenue is where the the murder happened. Right. He asked directions to the train station, and the young man basically said, hey, I'll walk with you there. I'm going that way anyway. He claimed the man didn't talk but was breathing heavily and seemed to have trouble swallowing. He said that they walked four blocks south of Central Ave, kind of parallel to it, to get to the train Train station on what was essentially a fairly dark road, and they did have electric lights at that time. So he said it was sort of odd that the man did not walk down one of the more well-lighted roads prior to getting to him. Mm. So if you're lost and you're in a town you don't know. You're not going to walk down the creepy, And you see like a well-lit road. You probably walk down that and try to find somebody to ask for directions, not in the dark, in fields. So he came upon the dark road with him. Right. They kind of met. Yeah, yeah. So so that was sort of worth noting. And then Constable G.R. Harris claimed his wife's sister saw a man on Jefferson Ave near the murder site as she was coming home from work on Friday, and she described him as tall and wearing a derby hat and an overcoat. Did any of these people know that people were talking about this type of guy, or did they all say, like, all separately? They all sort of came forward. On their own. On their own, Okay. Right. So, so it's like three separate people 
came and said, hey, I saw somebody suspicious. Right. And it all matches the same type yeah. of human. Okay. So it could be like I just didn't the know constable's like wife's sister. And like, oh, yeah, I saw a guy like that. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. So the constable's wife's sister is like, hey, I kind of saw a weird guy around the area yeah, of the murder. They're all starting to think about like, where were they? What right. They see? I got then it. Then okay. this young guy's like, yeah, some weird guy came from that direction, asked me how to get to the train station. We walked there. And so then there was a guy with an overcoat being sketch apparently they never find out who that is of course if he just goes in the city he's gone right could be related could be unrelated everything else with this case has so many twists and turns (laughs) that i'm not gonna be like that's the guy pretty shady but who knows and in the town this small does everybody know everybody everybody knows everybody mostly or like by affiliation like you might not know somebody but you know who they are yeah if there's strangers in the town chances are somebody would know who they belong to know them you know what i mean so the idea that there's all these people like that there's a murdered woman and there's this guy and nobody knows who they are is kind of weird okay rahway at the time and today is sort of a transit hub so there are people coming in and out of town it's not like unheard of it's not like they're traveling three hours into the farms and who's this guy. But, um, but they still mostly, it's a town at the time of about five or 6,000 people. So during the, uh, the inquest, once it does kick off eventually about three weeks later, numerous witnesses are interviewed, including William Rubeck, who, if you remember last episode, was the one who originally found the body but said nothing. Right. He just went to work like a psychopath. Yep. And so he's interviewed because it comes out that he found the body and didn't do anything. And he's kind of grilled by the prosecutor. Did he tell people? Like, how did that just come out? I think he told somebody. But it does come out that he was around that area at the time. Sadie Van Ness, who is the woman that walked with him for a time before they split up, mentions that she was walking to work around that time. And so one way or another, it's kind of it comes out yeah, that, yeah. that he was been there. there. So obviously that doesn't look good for him. But again... Nothing comes of it. It's just kind of, you know, I was scared. I didn't know what to do kind of thing. William Brunt, the guy who we've talked about multiple times who's kind of been blaming his neighbor, there's rumors that start circulating that the knife found is his. Oh, plot twist. So to get ahead of that, he's, again, (laughs) he's a member of the jury. He essentially demands to be interrogated as a witness and he tells a bunch of sort of nonsensical things about like non-answers that don't really make sense about how the the knife's not his and everybody's kind of like this guy sucks (laughs) side note both him and the froats do move out of town after the murder and all this wraps up wow i assume in the froats case it's because they're being harassed yeah and i think in brunt's case it's because by the end of this nobody likes him he's guilty yeah i don't personally think he was guilty but I don't know. But he could have been. He's kind of shady. And I think he was trying to become something. Become like, something. Yeah. It said in the story that he would sell everybody out to mm. save himself kind of thing. We don't like those types. So I, I think, again, the reason I'm bringing this up is all this stuff kind of comes up. But even though it's exciting, maybe in the moment in the courtroom, nothing ever happens. No one is ever clearly linked to the crime enough to be charged with it. Okay. Kind of going backwards a little bit. The second Sunday after the body was found, there's a second viewing open to the public, same as the first one. Uh, once again, thousands of people attend, and railroads actually add rail cars to their lines to accommodate the increased demand. Wow. So they're like, we know a lot of people are going to railway. Let's put extra train cars out there. And from this point on, viewings afterwards are limited just to people who had credible claims to know who the woman was. Fair. How long did the viewings go on for? So. Like week-wise. Like four or five weeks. 
they do not have that much ice. Like, it got to a point where it was like, guys, we can't keep doing this. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the second Sunday. So that's like a, a week and a couple of days after the murder itself. So from that point on, only people who come forward and have like a credible claim to know the woman are allowed to then go look, look at, at the body. And just like the first time, nothing comes from this viewing on the second Sunday other than rumors. And we'll talk about some of them on a future episode. But again, oh, I think it's this person. I think it's that person. Yeah, but like nothing. Nothing ever comes of it. On April 11th, 1887, a funeral is held by the town. It's led by Reverend William Gay of the First Presbyterian Church in conjunction with two Methodist churches, a Baptist church, and a local German Presbyterian church. Because they just didn't know. They didn't know, and they wanted to a lot of the Christian churches in town were like, this woman has been sitting in a box for three weeks, ogled by all kinds of people, and we have to treat her like a person. So these are the ones that do it. That's I think nice. the German church was involved because a lot of people assumed the woman was German. Yes. So it was like, she might be German. We got to take care of our own. So they sort of do this interfaith funeral ceremony, but it's really led by Reverend Gay. Upon completion of the service, the body is placed in the receiving vault at the Rahway Cemetery and once everybody leaves it's immediately taken back to the morgue for further identification attempts. So they just pretended to lay her? So they do like a funeral service, like a religious service, and then they carry the body to the cemetery, but then it goes back to the police for a while. That doesn't make sense. Right. And it's because they were like, if there's any chance that anybody can identify her, we want to keep her as long as we can. But finally, on Tuesday, May 3rd, so keep in mind, March. March 25th is likely the night she was killed. March 26th is when she's found. This is 1887. They don't have refrigerators. <laughs> well over 30 days since she was found. The unknown woman is laid to rest in Rahway Cemetery. She's buried in a section of the cemetery away from other residents because some people had raised concerns that they didn't know if she was like a good Christian woman. We talked about this. Yeah. Her pallbearers, this whole thing is incredibly depressing. So it's the people so that carried her casket were six New York reporters who had covered the case extensively. Mm. And her burial was attended by less than 40 people. A lot of people came to the funeral, to be fair to like the townsfolk of Rahway, like thousands. But at the end of it, there's about 40 people, including a couple of people who thought they were related to the woman. Never proven, but they were like, we think she's our sister. We're going to go to the burial. So she's laid to rest by Reverend Gay, who did the funeral ceremony a couple weeks before. And she's laid to rest without a name uh, or really a headstone. Although later, a stone was erected by the town, which simply stated a woman found dead March 20. 1887. So what's crazy too, and, and I will talk about it when we talk about some of the possible identities of the woman, yeah. none of them have ever panned out. I don't think any of them are accurate, to be honest. But there was one woman who was present at the funeral who was convinced this was her relative, and she petitioned to be able to have her name on the headstone. Like oh. she was going to pay for a headstone, and um, they, they said no. That's so nice. Yeah, because they couldn't prove it was her. So Why did she think? So this woman, Mary, was her name. And basically, there's this whole story with Mary. She's in Scotland. Her relatives are in the U.S., her sisters. Her brother-in-law apparently like had a thing for Mary, and they thought he killed her because she kind of like disappeared. But it turns out that not only was she not dead, but later on, and we talked about this at the cemetery tour, me and Mr. Shipley, but there's relatives today who have come forward and like, here's her death certificate. Like She died well after. So it wasn't her. But I guess the woman looked enough like the missing relative that they thought this was her and they wanted to. Wanted that closure. Yeah, exactly. So I thought I would close here with a section of uh, Reverend Gay's eulogy. Again, this is where we got the name from our podcast from, but I think it really sets the tone for this whole story and kind of brings it to like a nice closure as far as this chapter. 
I seem to see before me a humble home where father and mother are waiting for a message that never comes. Eyes are filled with tears and hearts are heavy because there are no tidings of the absent daughter. The hours are like days, the days lengthen into weeks as the lonely parents watch, wait, and hope. But the child cometh not, the post brings no letters of love. Absent and unknown friends, she for whom you wait has fallen into the snare of the fowler. Honestly, a gorgeously written eulogy. To write that for a random person that no one knows. Right, and it really, like, to me, sets the tone of the whole tragedy of this whole situation. Like, everybody's all wrapped up in the murder and what happened, but there are people that are waiting for this person that will never hear from them again. Yeah. And she died among strangers, and they just tried to treat her like they would have treated anybody. So I'm going to leave it there. We're going to pause. I will be back, like I said, to discuss some of the women that, you know, it was thought at the time this could have been. Keep in mind, none of that was ever proven. So that'll be a shorter one. And then after that, again, yeah, we've we've found a lot of interesting stuff in this whole process. That's it, what it, I'm excited for. It, we, we had to get through this in order to get to maybe the more interesting bits of who could this woman be and what do the clues tell us. Yeah. We have scoured the internet for newspaper <laughs> articles from that time. I have talked to my my good friend now Maurice <laughs> at the New York Public Library who personally scanned paper from 1887 very Which obscure awesome. newspaper articles that weren't available Which online. We should when we go through that um, share the clippings of it the Police Gazette has literally like a whole page for the Rahway murder. And the Police Gazette was something I didn't know about. It basically covered crime and bare knuckle boxing. But so there's lots of cool things coming. There are. Additionally like her rings she was wearing some rings we found out some really cool information that actually ties those rings to a geographic location. So a lot of interesting interesting things coming and one thing we do want to do on future episodes here coming up is kind of introduce some other folks to the podcast so talk with experts in the areas regarding the things that we want to discuss have them on the podcast interview them get their analysis of what we found and and what that could tell us and hopefully get to flesh out a bit more of this story and ultimately you know ideally help to identify this poor woman who died friendless and alone in Rahway yeah so tune in next time to Absent unknown friends. This episode was produced by Patrick for taking the airport in Vegas. <laughs>